0: Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to a Wednesday night seminar at the Middle East Center. We are delighted to be welcoming back Dr. Peter Hill, who has been a member of our community for years as a research fellow at Christchurch, Mm -hmm. and brought a whole new sense of excitement and vigor around the study of intellectual history in the 19th century Middle East. Not surprisingly, he has since been poached away. He is now The Vice Chancellor's Research Fellow in Modern History is that correct? At the University of Northumbria. The wonderful title,
1: Northumbria University. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Which goes to show that the talents that he demonstrated here in Oxford are appreciated nationwide. There is a clear effort to try and bring more modern Middle Eastern studies to Northumbria, and you know, Peter, we're excited. We would love to Mm. be part of that and help in any way we can. But you know, the first step is getting you back to talk about your new book. And we heard about the book for a long time. You and I have <coughs> even shared seminar platforms before, yeah, yeah. talking about our respective approaches to 19th century history. You from the intellectual mm-hmm. perspective, me from the sort of socio-political. But it was in seeing the pre-publication proofs of utopia and civilization, and Arab Maghreb that I really began to appreciate the depth and the engagement of your scholarship What is most striking about reading your work is that you bring to it a synthesis of Arab sources that is quite extraordinary for its depth and breadth. And I think that you're willing to take on in a monograph a scope of history that most have shied away from. The decades that you span in this work to try and weave together the origins of a movement that will span Egypt and the Fertile Crescent pays off richly in the, the four main chapters of the book. So I loved it, I know you will love it, and I see we even have copies of this overpriced book at a very (laughs) huge (laughs) discount for those of you who cannot resist taking one home with you. I propose that we open the floor Mm -hmm. to Peter. He will give us his presentation. We'll do question and answer. Those who wish to buy the book, I think you're offering it for 45 pounds. pounds. Yeah, Down from 75? Down from 75. So this Uh, is a major reduction. (laughs) And then for those of you who are free, the Middle East Centre would be delighted to host you for a drink or a bite of dinner over at the Gardener's Arms on Plantation Road. So with no further ado, Peter, welcome
1: home. Great to have you <laughs> back.
0: Tell us about Utopia and Civilization.
1: Well, thanks very much, Eugene, for that introduction. Very kind. Um, very kind of you also to uh, put a blurb on the back cover of the book and <laughs> endorse it before it was even published. And thanks to the Middle East Centre, obviously, for, for hosting me and to everyone for being here. And I suppose I should also briefly extend some further thanks to various people, largely in Oxford, who have supported this project over many years while it was being written. I guess one of the sort of premises that I was working from when writing the book was that any intellectual work is the product of many hands beyond the person whose name is on the cover. And this is certainly true of mine, obviously supported not just by Christchurch, but by uh, St John's College as as a graduate student working on, on this stuff by the Oriental Institute, by the Middle East Centre here, and of course by a, a number of people, some of whom I'm glad to say are, are in this room. Ham Salaf, who supervised my <laughs> doctoral project that this grew out of several years ago now. <laughs> but I should also mention a, a few others who can't be here, such as Robin Ossel, who guided, I suppose, my first forays into... Naftha scholarship as an undergraduate, and Marilyn Booth and Hossein Omar, with whom I organised a number of things around the Arab Naftha, and who were very helpful in the sort of final formulation of the project. I also say as it had a slight sense of déjà vu. I'm very pleased to be presenting here now in this room in the old Middle East Centre building, now the Kurdar building. Of course because this is one of the places I suppose you could say it began when, as an undergraduate, I was given a sort of permission slip or a, 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 a note to the librarian of the Middle East Centre that I was allowed to use the library, which undergraduates weren't and probably still aren't, uh, without such a thing, by Robin Ossel to come and do my dissertation as, as an undergraduate. So it was here, I think probably in this room, that I first read a number of the authors mm-hmm. that I, I will mention today, um, such as Rafael Powell. So I will begin properly now, though, with a beginning. So on the 1st of January, 1858, a young Syrian poet called Khalil al launched the first issue of his new newspaper. This was called uh, Hadiqat al-Akhbar, the Garden of News, and it's opened with a kind of manifesto, an open letter, really, to the readers from the editor, Khoury, who was then only 22 years old. It contained a poem which was called Al-Asr al-Jadid, the New Age, and the poem begins with the following rousing words. Arise, see how the universe orders itself by design. Witness the age, how it smiles with refinement. Hmm. Um, i need people to, to read the Arabic for themselves. So I'd like to begin by asking what the young Khalil al may have been thinking of when he announced the birth of a new era at the beginning of the new year of 1858 in Beirut, in what was then Ottoman-ruled Syria. What was he thinking about? He might have been thinking of the astonishing growth of this city of Beirut itself over the past three decades, from quite a small port on the Syrian coast what was becoming the major entrepot of that part of the eastern Mediterranean. He might have been thinking of things such as the recent reform decree issued by the Ottoman government in 1856, which promised equality to all the religions of the empire and heralded the Tanzimat Programme of Reforms, a massive modernisation and expansion of the scope of the bureaucratic state. More particularly, though, he may have been thinking about the remarkable cultural developments in places like Beirut and other cities around the eastern Mediterranean, like Cairo, Aleppo, Alexandria. So Khoury's own newspaper and his printing press, many others like them, were one aspect of this, the growth of schools, scientific cultural societies, all of these cultural developments adding up to what by the early 20th century would become known as the Arab Nakhla, revival or resurgence, this cultural awakening movement. So let's leave Khoury for a moment in Beirut in 1858, glorying in the birth of his new age in his new newspaper, and consider this thing called the Arab Nakhla, the littering cultural movement of the long 19th century in Arabic, and what later writers have had to say about it. So very broadly, I think there are two kinds of story which are told about the Nakhda, two meta-narratives, if you like. One is what I call the heroic meta-narrative, the Nakhda seen as the founding moment, really, of Arab modernity and later of Arab nationalism. Its actors, people I'll mention, like Rafal Tothawi in Egypt, Butos al-Bastani in Lebanon, um, are commemorated as national heroes until today. In this view, they are pioneers, heroically forging newness out of the backwardness, the decadence or decline in Hattat of the era of Ottoman and European imperialism. In Hattat, in Arabic, decline being the counterpart to nahda as a revival. Mm-hmm. This view goes back to some later nahda writers themselves, uh, in many ways, and in English, I suppose, is particularly associated in, in many ways with um, Albert Harani's classic Arabic thought in the liberal, age of 1962, I think. Since then, though, another set of scholars and writers have created a rather different opposing story, which I refer to as the tragic meta-narrative. This sees the Nuttla as a time in which the Arab world, with its own distinctive traditions, was subjugated by European imperialism. So the Nathla pioneers become not heroes in this story, but the unwitting agents of the West. Their translation and adaptation of Western texts becomes a form of seduction, softening up the Arab public, sapping its will to resist, and leading it subsequently to adopt a subordinate position within a rigid European-ruled imperial order. This view is now found especially in postcolonial scholarship in, uh, in English, and thinks particularly again of um, Tim Mitchell's Colonising Egypt uh, 1988, but one also finds a similar kind of narrative in, say, um, Islamist commentaries on the Nuttma. So both of these meta-narratives, I think, are similar in the sense that they focus on the origins of ideas. Ideas have to be from here, the Arab world, or from there, the West. They are or- originate in tradition somewhere back in the past or in modernity, which begins at a certain point. And these origin stories are perhaps particularly tempting because they reproduce a major polarity within Arab politics today between those who lay claim to Tanwir, enlightenment, modernity, and those who claim Asala, re- cultural, religious, authenticity. Now, this isn't to say that the impressive recent upsurge in Nahda studies, as some have called it in the Arab world or in the Western Academy, necessarily fits directly into either of these meta narratives. But I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been a major challenge to them as general stories, general paradigms within which to understand the movement. So one other reason why I think these stories seem plausible is that studies of the Arab Nuffar tend to focus on the period from the 1870s or 1880s until the early 20th century. So a later phase of the Nuffar that I'm looking at in this book. And this later period seems to offer quite good evidence in some ways for both of these Meta-narratives. It was, after all, the heyday of European imperialism in the region. It was also the period when movements opposing imperialism, anti-colonial nationalism, modern Islamism were born. And many intellectuals of this period did indeed talk in terms of the origins of ideas, things like ah, authentic culture versus a foreign imported one, or of a modern progressive culture as against a backward traditional one. So I suppose in some sense where I started with with this project was to ask what happens when you take these paradigms back into an earlier phase of the Natha from the 1830s to the early 1870s. And what I found and what I argue in the book is that Natha writers in this period were far less obsessed with the genealogies and origins of ideas than later ones seem to have been. As we saw with Khoury briefly, they were really quite optimistic confident in their ability to take part in the new age that seemed to be opening up around them. And I think that you can explain this in terms less of particular special characteristics of the Arab Ottoman world itself than of shifts within a wider global history. The later phase of the Nakhla from 1875 or so onwards took place in a worldwide era of high imperialism, of imposed competing territorial blocks. In the Middle East, this was represented, obviously, by the British occupation of Egypt in 1882, the French protectorate over Tunisia a year earlier, an Ottoman state which was increasingly hollowed out, run in the interests of European creditors. The mid-19th century was rather (coughs) different in some respects. It was the peak of what's been referred to as the imperialism of free trade, the high seas being policed by the British Navy, lots of gunboat diplomacy, lots of diplomatic interference in places like Syria in particular, the forcible, at times, opening up of markets to capitalist commodities. But this was still a period which left considerable room for manoeuvre to some non-European elites. In many places, they could still envisage prosperous, independent futures for themselves in a world which was nonetheless structured by capitalism and by modern bureaucratic states. This world, the world of civilization, as it was widely called at the time across a variety of languages, was clearly one dominated by Europe, or really by great powers of Northwest Europe like Britain and France. But it was also possible for these non-European elites to envisage integrating their societies into that world while preserving or enhancing their own status and without surrendering all of their local autonomy or becoming part of an unambiguous European-run hierarchy. So reformers in places like Japan or Siam, what became Thailand, intellectuals in British-ruled India, the statesmen who created the Tanzimat reforms in the Ottoman Empire, all can be seen as sharing in this, you know, broadly speaking, this kind of vision. And so, as I argue, did their contemporaries, these Arab intellectuals of the early number. They believed in something called civilization, on a pattern which was derived to a great extent from capitalist Europe. But they didn't believe that only Europeans could be civilised. And they projected visions, at times utopian visions of their own, of Arab... Syrian, Egyptian, Ottoman forms of civilization, within this imperial order of the Ottoman state, and also within a wider civilized world beyond it. And it's this vision of civilization, Tammundun, as, as they call it in Arabic, that I want to explore. On its basis, I aim to construct a rather different paradigm of the Arab Nutha, distinct from these two meta-narratives, the heroic story of modernization and the tragic one of incorporation into colonial structures. So, I'll now present, as I do in the book, but at rather less <laughs> great length, um, three sets of texts from three centres of the reasonably well known and canonical Napa of this period, the 1830s to the early 1870s. The Beirut of Khalil al Khori, we've already touched on, we'll go into that a little more. We'll also look at the Cairo of Mehmed Ali's regime in Egypt in its heyday in the 1830s and 40s, and a rather less Famous example, Aleppo in the 1860s and the Tanzimat reforms kicked in. All of these examples embody in different ways, I think, important <laughs> aspects of this period of the that the project of civilization and the visions, times utopian visions that it entailed. So Beirut, as I've said, was looking increasingly prosperous and successful in 1858 when Khalil Khoury was writing. It was home to important new cultural institutions sponsored by a rising class of merchants, often trading with Europe. Their project was beginning to be defined in terms of this key mid-19th century concept of civilization, to in Arabic. But the most influential discussion of this concept came only a couple of years later, to a moment when Beirut's civilising project seemed exposed to a grave risk of failure. In 1860, major episodes of sectarian violence racked Mount Lebanon and Damascus, Refugees poured into the city of Beirut, both a French expeditionary force and an Ottoman army were dispatched to restore order, which they proceeded to do, largely the Ottomans, by force. It was in this tense atmosphere that fouad Bersha, the Ottoman sultan's special envoy arrived in Beirut and was welcomed really as a saviour by the, the bourgeoisie of that city. Khalil Khoury's newspaper, for instance, prints so many poems praising Fouad Persia that he gets embarrassed and he forbids them to print any more. Um, and Khoury, wanting to be even more sycophantic, um, announced that if he couldn't print poems to Fouad, he wouldn't ever print any poems at all in the newspaper. <laughs> um, so it's in this crisis that um, another Beirut Christian, Butros al-Bastani, by then a major figure in Beirut's cultural societies and literary scene, began to publish his famous series of pamphlets, which were known as Nefir Suriya, the Clarion of Syria, recently published in an English translation by Jens Hansen and Hisham Safiyadine. Yes. So this was basically a call to his countrymen to end the violence in Mount Lebanon, to put their homeland, their watan, above sectarian loyalties, and to accept the New Deal offered by the Tanzimat decrees of the Ottoman state. And by doing so, to live up to the standard of this thing called civilization, to Mandun. So civilization was Busterni's ideal, but it had many aspects for him. One is certainly a European set of standards. The civilised countries, al-Buddan and mutamandina, meaning the great powers of Europe, they're looking on at the violence in Lebanon and defining Syrians and Lebanese as the opposite of civilised. As Stephen Sheehy has argued, Busterni feels this imputation of deficiency very deeply... But he also sets about constructing a positive vision of what civilization can mean in Syria, how Syria, as people were then coming to call these lands, Bel-e-de-Sham, can become civilized in its own right. He warns his audience against merely borrowing from Europe and/or from elsewhere. This will lead, lead just to a false civilization, an imitation of external features. True civilization, on the contrary, comes from within. It's also supposed to be more than just a sense of cultural refinement, the arts and sciences that Khalil Khoury had already talked about, but something that extends across all areas of life. So this is part of his definition of tamaddun civilization in the Fir As for true civilization, it is that state of the social body which is conducive to the growth of all the forces of the human race, individually and as a whole. Therefore, it is not limited to a single thing or partial things which are found among the public, such as sciences or industries, for instance. Rather, it extends to all the conditions of the public, organised in a social body under specific bonds in various aspects, beginning in the inner man and from there to the outer man. And its fundamental purpose is simply growth. Nor does Bustani regard this as a matter of individual cultivation alone. It has to be for the general good, raising up, as he says, all members of this public, the Jumhur, both men and women. So Bustani is an early advocate of women's education. And in particular in this sectarian context of 1860, not favouring one group of the public over another, meaning largely religious communities. So what we see here is really a very general vision, civilization for everybody, but What's striking about Bastani's pamphlets is that this vision, as expressed in the abstract, is somewhat at odds with his actual practice in writing his address to his countrymen. The general address to all of the, the sons of the homelands, the sons of the Watan, often slides off in the, these pamphlets into an appeal to the leaders to restrain the violence of their followers. So these followers, the commoners, the Amiya, he describes as blind. Uh, silent tool in the hands of their leaders and the notables. So we're reminded here that one of the most unsettling aspects of this 1860 violence, as Osama Muktisi has argued, was that it was not just sectarian between religious communities, but also in part done by commoners, armed peasants, terrorising respectable notables and merchants. Busterni, much like the Ottoman state, to some extent like the European powers as well, is looking to a pact among different sets of notables and the leaders of sectarian groups to put down this violence. He's envisaging a political community which isn't dominated purely by the old elites of Mount Lebanon, the notables, the tax-farming families, or by the Ottoman governors. There is this space for people such as himself, intellectuals, merchants, and others who can gain weight within the community. But despite the universalizing language you see here, in practice he doesn't seem to see this order as opening up very much to the commoners, to the Amiya, who had rebelled in 1858 as they had previously in 1840 and in 1821, who had their own rather distinctive presence on the Lebanese political scene by this point. Instead, his text and some of his later writings also provided an excellent ideology for an alliance between some of the old notables reformist Ottoman officials like Fouad Bersha, and very much the Beiruti bourgeoisie, the merchants and professional classes. This latter group would come together uh, across the lines of religious community through the 1860s in institutions like Beirut's New Town Council, but also things like the school, which Basteni himself organises as a cross-confessional institution from 1863, the Madrasa Watoniya and cultural societies like the Beirut Scientific Society, in which Bustani played a leading role. So these organisations, with their multi-faith membership, formal rules, printed proceedings, membership lists, this is the start of the membership list of one of the early iterations of the the Syrian Society, in the volume that Bustani published as, as editor, it was their proceedings, these kind of organizations epitomized his vision of urban civilization, within which respectable people, from new elites as well as those of the old who had been able to adapt, would hold sway over the uncivilized. The old style urban ideology of city versus country could be calked onto a more European derived uh, distinction between civilization and savagery. As he wrote again in Nafir Suriya in eighteen sixty-one. The savage man stands in the same relation to the civilised man as the ignorant man to the wise man, or the beast to the man, or darkness to light, or the blind man to the sighted, or in the same relation as the monsters of farthest Africa who eat one another to the great men and nobles of Paris or England, or in the same relation as the Arabs who inhabit the desert to the inhabitants (laughs) of Beirut, for instance. This, this kind of trope of civilization versus savagery and the notion of a scale of civilization or development on which different peoples could be placed had already been popularized in Arabic at a, a slightly earlier stage of the Nutter than even Bustani writing in 1861. This phase was based in Egypt, which I'll now move on to, in the heyday of the rationalizing, reforming autocracy of Mehmed Ali, and a key figure in this was Rifah. famous as a traveller to Europe, sent to Paris in 1826 on one of Mehmed Ali's educational missions, famous on his return as an educational reformer within Egypt, overseeing new schools which draw on particularly French models. A somewhat less celebrated part of Tothowi's career is the translation work which he did immediately after his return from France as he was beginning to mastermind this new programme of schools. And this was largely translation of French geography textbooks. So we can ask why Taftawi in the 1830s sought to make a career particularly out of geography. One answer was that this was when Mehmed Ali's state was reaching its peak not only of control and exploitation of Egypt's resources, but also of territorial expansion. So this map shows in schematic form how Mehmed Ali, after seizing power in Egypt around 1811 and appropriating all of the land revenues within Egypt, getting peasants to grow cotton for export to, to Europe and starting all of these new infrastructure projects, canals, docks and so on, poured most of the revenue from this into his army and his expansionist ambitions. His armies march into Sudan, the Hejaz, Greece. In the 1830s, with his new European-trained conscript army, he invades Syria, defeats the Ottoman sultan's forces deep in Anatolia and holds um, Syria throughout the 1830s until 1840s. So this invasion and the need for up-to-date geographical knowledge coincides with Tatawi's translations, for which he is recognised and rewarded, in fact, by Ali personally. So how could this geographical knowledge serve Ali's state? Geography has often been seen as the imperial discipline par excellence, a form of power knowledge that can make territories, populations, and resources available to imperial states um, in a uniquely legible fashion. In the Egyptian context, this has generally been represented particularly by Tim Mitchell in colonising Egypt and other people around that kind of project as something that European empires were doing, mapping and dominating Egyptians. But as Tatawi's example shows, Mepadali's state itself was capable of adapting this power knowledge, although it was, to some extent, derived from Europe, to a great extent for for Tatawi's geographies, and turning it into a form which could serve its own ends more effectively. So D'Artaoui's introductory geography textbook, La Tauribertus Chefia les morilles de la Geographie, was printed in 1834, and it was compiled from, mainly from two French geographies. One was a standard school textbook called the Nouvelle Géographie Méthodique, which two French geography teachers, Mises and Michelot, had written and had been printed in great numbers in France under the Lois Guizot, um, for French primary schools from 1833. The other one was uh, a much more detailed work, Conrad uh, Malprin's Précis de la Géographie Universelle, an Enlightenment geography which Messas and Michelo actually draw on themselves in their textbook, um, a multi-volume work of which Tartori later translates uh, two volumes. But in this geography compilation of Tartoribertus Schaffer, Tartori draws on these two sources but also makes many other changes and additions, drawing on the techniques of the Adeb literary tradition, um, to weave together different layers of text. The overall effect is to produce something subtly different from these French originals and much more precisely geared to Mehmed Ali's aims. He tells a historical anecdote in his preface to this work. The first map in the world, he says, was drawn by Kim Sesostris or Sisak, the first of the kings of Egypt. He conquered the country and made subject to himself the rulers of India and Yemen, and he wished to make plain to the people of Egypt the greatness of his rule and the extent of his dominion. So he drew for them a picture of what his rule contained. And that, of course, was the first map. This thought is not so far away from Tartawi's project in taar i ber He singled out in this book the lands ruled by Mehmed Ali for special treatment, what he calls the Egyptian countries, the Buldan and Masriya, include not just Egypt, but Syria, Hejaz, Sudan. And uh, what was then referred to as Nubia, so Upper Egypt extending into northern Sudan. These receive extra material taken from Malbran as well as the standard um, sections he's taken from the uh, Nouvelle Geographie um, Methodique, and he says this is to create uh, balance and proportion, which in a sense it does. You know, Mises and Michelin's work is very Eurocentric, very Francocentric, and Tafawie makes it much less so by adding material on these other. Areas. But he also is expressing a vision of Mehmed Ali's domain, albeit seen within an overall Ottoman order. Also, like Bustani, as I mentioned, Taftawi places the elites, at least, of these Egyptian countries and others close to Europe within a hierarchy of civilization. And other peoples, the black peoples of Africa, Sudan, as they're called, Bedouin, nomads, firmly below both of these. So he takes the following passage more or less directly, translate to it from um, Misas and, and Mishaloo. He says, some have divided people according to the manner of their subsistence and politeness, or its absence, into three grades. The first grade is that of savage nomads, al-hummal and al-mutawahishin, if you follow the Arabic. The second is that of barbarous coarse people, ahl al-khushuna al-mutabarbarin, the third is that of the civilised, mutamaddenin, people of culture, adab, elegance, zarafa, and knowledge, marifa. So this is, this is translated more or less directly from the French. But he gives examples which then are not in the French. So, an example of the first grade are nomads of the countries of the Sudan and America, who are still like roaming beasts, do not know right from wrong, cannot read or write, adopt no crafts, know nothing at all of the varieties of prosperity, omran, but are driven by their passions as their desires decree like beasts. An example of the second grade are the Arabs of the desert. They're sociable and subsist together. They know right from wrong. They know how to read and write. They hold to a law, sharia. But of the sociability, the ta'annus, which belongs to the people of large cities, they possess nothing whatsoever. An example of the third grade are the countries of Egypt, Hashem, the Turks, the Persians, the Arabs, some of the countries of the West, the Arab West and Maghreb, um, and China, the countries of America, and so on. These countries, on the whole, possess prosperity, Umran, um, polities, sciences, laws, and industries. So he's placing these countries which are listed here firmly within the third civilised grade. And actually, he neglects to mention Europe here. Yeah. In, in, in a version of this passage which he adopts into his uh, travel narrative, the famous Rehla uh, that he writes um, about going to France, Tachlis le Brise, he more or less reproduces this, pa- this passage with the bit from the Geography book as well, and there he includes Europe in the list. So he's amending and, and, and switching around his text um, in, in this process. But even without Europe in this, in this list, putting these countries and within a third grade that you're calling civilised is not something that most writers of European geography textbooks would have done. They tended to see people like the Arabs or Egyptians as half civilised at best. So within the terms of this European distinction these peoples get a promotion. So as well as equipping Egyptian officers and bureaucrats with practical information that they needed for their projects of rule, which I don't really have time to go into here, this and other geography works of Tatawis served Mehmed Ali's regime, obviously, in an ideological way. They presented and justified this notion of the Egyptian countries linked to Egypt by some kind of natural ties, They also justified the idea that the core elite of these countries at least was civilised, and on a similar level to other civilised countries, possibly in his travel narrative at least, including those of Europe. People like the Bedouin and the Sudanese, on the other hand, who the Egyptians were trying to subdue and rule, were relegated to a lower grade of civilization. And the utilitarian and ideological aspects are of course, linked. Uh, The question of civilised status at this time was of great political importance, there's a whole campaign at the same uh, moments by French or French-speaking or writing um, employees and allies of Mehmed Ali to advertise how well his regime has civilised and improved Egypt. The British, on the other hand, um, Lord Palmerston, the Prime Minister at the time, tended to dismiss Mehmed Ali's, Palmerston's words, boasted civilization of Egypt as the arrantist humbug. He says this not long before he intervened decisively to expel Mehmed Ali's troops from Syria and confine his forces and his regime to Egypt. So these notions of civilization can have a very practical effect at the time. So we've heard a certain amount about civilization and greater civilization, And I, I now want to talk a, a little bit more about the, the other theme, which can, has perhaps seemed a little subdued, which is that of um, utopia. And to do so, I'll discuss a rather less well-known centre of the Nakhla, Aleppo, in the 1860s, and a less famous writer, Francis Marraj. In some ways, I think he's the most interesting character in, in my book, because he gives us a sense of these utopian aspirations which some people had for a project of civilization in um, the Arab East, as well as some of its contradictions and uncertainties. So Francis Marraj comes from... In many ways, a similar background to Bustani and um, He comes from Aleppo's prosperous Christian Catholic merchant class. By the 1860s, many of these people were forming close ties with reformist Ottoman governors who were beginning to implement the Tanzimat reforms. Um, and a remarkable and really rather little-known literary circle emerges in Aleppo from among these kinds of people. Francis Muresh was in many ways its uh, leading light, and in 1865, he publishes a book with the strange allegorical title of The Forest of Justice. And he dedicates it to the new mm. Ottoman governor of Aleppo, Jeddah Bersha. This is the original 1865 edition. It's later republished, and the poem doesn't come with it, which allows him to be claimed as an Arab nationalist by subsequent generations of uh, writers. But it's there in 1865. Much of the text is taken up by a character called the philosopher, Al-Philosof, who sets out a blueprint for what civilization should look like. So the project of Tamandun here is presented as a kind of utopia, like uh, Thomas More's Utopia, A No Place, an abstract idealised vision, an imaginary rather than a real geography. Mm. And on the surface, the book presents um, a pretty abstract allegorical picture. It opens with a dreamer narrator who is wandering in what he calls the valleys of mental contemplation. He sees visions first of a procession of human civilizations from the egyptians up to modern america he then emerges into a great forest which is the forest of justice from the title and he sees lights hears voices he approaches to see what's going on and sees a figure a, a circle of figures who are talking and these turn out to be the members of a court who rule over the kingdom of civilization their names are abstract allegorized ones the king is called freedom malik al-hurriya the queen is called wisdom Malik al-hikma the minister is called uh, Love of Peace, Muhammad al salam and the captain of the army of civilization is another and rather uh, less allegorical title. But the philosopher is um, then summoned by this circle from the city of light, his residence, apparently, Medina to nur to advise them. And much of the text is taken up, in fact, by the philosopher setting out a blueprint for what civilization should look like. So it all seems very abstract, an ideal city of allegory. But there are what seem to be also references to actual places and events. In one place, Madrush makes a reference to the contemporary civil war in America, which is going on, a battle between freedom and slavery, as he sees it. He also brings in, at some length, a concrete example of slavery within the Ottoman Empire. The philosopher calls on a former slave from Sudan to tell his story of capture and then later liberation by um, an enlightened Ottoman master. The episode offers perhaps a particularly idealistic version of the project of the civilization as liberation, potentially available to everyone, even former slaves. The narrative ends on an upbeat note with Madrash foreseeing the installation of a similar project of civilization in Syria under the benign rule of the Ottoman Sultan Abdulmejid. But there are other references to Ottoman reality which are rather less optimistic. The main event that the philosopher the king and other members of the court are discussing is a war. They've just defeated their enemies who belong to the kingdom of slavery and they subject them to a trial. In Syria in 1865, it's hard not to think, despite all of this abstract, allegorized language of the sectarian violence, not just of 1850 in Aleppo, where Marrosh was from, but also just five years before in 1860 in Lebanon and Damascus. The Ottoman state had suppressed the mainly Muslim and Druze rebels and put them on trial, and these trials were reported at great length in newspapers like Khalil Khoury's. Madras makes it clear, then, that this civilising project requires a war as a sort of foundational moment. Um, it requires violence. And some characters' voice doubts about whether this will even succeed. So the general, who's the leader of the army of civilization, thinks that the denizens of this kingdom of slavery are so barbarous that even after a thousand years, they won't be civilised. They're too heterogeneous. They're made up of every tribe and nation. Kabila, milla. They're different of kinds or of races. Ikhtelafel, ajnäs. Uh, prevents them from coalescing into a civilized um, body. The philosopher presents what seems to be a straightforward path of progress to greater civilization, greater peace, greater refinement. But the minister, whose uh, title is the, the Love of Peace, Mahadbat al Salam, draws perhaps on a rather different cyclical notion of history, suggesting that peace and civilization give rise to their opposites, war and barbarism. One thinks perhaps here of someone like Ibn Khaldun. The philosopher also sees the laws of civilization not as made by humans as such, but as in harmony with the laws of nature, which are ultimately given by God. This leads, though, to something of a tension. He espouses freedom very much as a value within human affairs, but recognises that material circumstances within nature implacably constrain and determine all beings. Freedom is possible only, he says, if man, humans, Comprehends that the flaring up, the flaring out of his existence, is in relation to the nothingness that preceded it and which shall replace it, like a tiny lightning flash that shone out in a dark night, and that all his surroundings attempt to destroy his frame to take back from him the materials that he stole from them by force. So this ushers in a long discussion of cosmology and natural sciences, and the philosopher himself, as perhaps this passage suggests, is uh, suffering, in a sense, from the temptation of materialist ways of thinking. He goes through a number of different possible theories for what the unity of the natural world is based on. It could be electricity, it could be heat, it could be gravity, it could be some theory based on endless space. But finally he rejects all of these in favour of a universe which is bound together by a God who's somewhere beyond human understanding, a kind of leap of faith into this divine explanation. But in some ways it's rather unsatisfactory. You know, The possibility has been opened up that you can think of the existence of God not just as an unquestioned fact but as one possible theory for explaining how nature works. So Majrash's vision ends with the dreamer-narrator awakening from his dream, hoping fervently that he will see the utopia of civilization realised in Syria under benevolent Ottoman rule, the doubts and tensions seemed to be, for the moment, resolved. But towards the end of his life in the early 1870s, Merrush would, I think, reconsider this position. In the meantime, he'd uh, visited France to pursue medical studies, but while he was doing this, he went blind. He returned to Aleppo and lived as more or less a recluse, increasingly depressed and bitter, according to accounts by contemporaries, until his rather early death. In these circumstances, he continued some of the lines of argument expressed in al haq At the end of the trial of the enemies of civilization, who are again allegorized, allegorized vices this time, the philosopher had made an especially bitter attack on the vice of Avarice of Buchen, who cares only for money and profits, this notion of money for getting more money. To this end, Avarice had tried to gather together all the resources in the world to itself in order to enslave People of the world. As the narrator though says, it dawned on me that a great rebellion, Fitna, Kubra, was rising in the world. Yes, a great rebellion starting to break out. See, the inhabited world, and Maskuna, has risen against you, O evil spirit, captain of avarice and greed, and see all people hurl curses and insults at you. And the philosopher goes on to say that these people are not to be blamed. This is perfectly understandable because he is in fact their enemy, opposed to their interests. In later writings, Madrush goes rather further than this. Near the end of his life, he's writing in terms reminiscent, perhaps, of someone like uh, Rousseau, that all men were created equal but corrupted by what he calls the barbarism of civilization. He adds that the true standard of people's worth was the work which they performed, not the status they have in the social order. The true ayen, a word which means notables, but also more literally sources. So the true sources of wealth through this pun, he says, are not the great elite families, the notables, but the working people, um, the real sources of everything that is produced. Um, Who are the alien? is how he expresses it. He writes another article shortly after the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in Europe, this spectacle of two civilised European states destroying each other with great barbarity, and he entitles this piece, in fact, Barbarous Civilization." a Tamundan al-Mutawahesh, and he writes, you know, woe to the civilization which has led humanity, while at the very summit of perfection, to create the worst of hellish instruments to kill and murder itself. He adds another point on basically misery among plenty. Woe to the civilization which, while it calls with the trumpet of joy, glad tidings and song, the lament of widows, orphans, and the multitude of the poor clamours around it. So, Madras is, is, is rather a complex figure, I think. In the Khairb al he had revealed the violent premises in which the project of civilization was built and certain uncertainties about whether it would succeed. But mm. in the end, in that work, he, he endorses it. In later works, though, he questions whether it's even desirable. It may turn out to be self-defeating, leading to poverty, exploitation, destructive war. In some ways, Marrash has been seen as pointing the way to a later era of Arab discourse when anti-imperial nationalism, socialism, and anarchism would raise similar criticisms. And I think that in many ways this is true, and that you know, from Aleppo, this in some ways rather marginal centre um, compared to the other two Nathta formations we've looked at, comes this, in a sense, most prescient vision of the three. So to return to the two meta-narratives which have tended to dominate the study of the NATA the nafta as heroic founding moment of Arab modernity and the nafta as the moment of capitulation to Western imperialism leaving a long legacy of dependency. I'd like to argue really that the material I presented here, the material I present in the book, doesn't fit within either of these paradigms very well and also to argue on the basis of this material that an alternative paradigm is plausible. This is one basically of projects of class and state building based within the Arab lands themselves. In this period that I'm talking about, 1830s to early 1870s, they sought to integrate themselves as seamlessly as they could into European-dominated capitalist civilization while retaining control themselves on a local level. They concluded alliances with Europeans and other outsiders and adopted many practices from them. But The the projects themselves were seeking mainly to exercise power over and extract resources from other local groups within the Arab lands or on their edges. Peasants, urban poor, nomads, people like the Sudanese, as well as from, obviously, the natural non-human environment. It was these other groups that they defined as barbarous or in need of civilization, while seeing themselves as, like Europeans and others, already civilised. Like Europeans too, like European elites... They were optimistic and confident. They claimed at times that civilization could offer prosperity and freedom to these other peoples who were under their own guidance. They used notions of civilization and barbarism to legitimate their rule or guardianship over other local groups. And in some cases, as with someone like Bustani, in a sense with, with Madras, this could be quite an expansive vision. This was supposed to go on and offer civilization to everyone, at least in some expressions of the ideal. But what they were doing was drawing the line between civilization and barbarism in a different place to where many Europeans would draw it, and particularly where Europeans would draw it insistently in the later era of high imperialism from the later 1870s onwards. So instead of coinciding with a line between white and non white races, this line between civilization and barbarism for Arab writers ran within the Arab. Eastern Ottoman groups themselves, differentiating certain ethnic and religious groups, perhaps, but also classes and styles of life. When the capitalist world later becomes one of these warring imperial blocs, when the line between civilized and uncivilized is drawn in a much more explicitly racialized way, arguing obviously for an Eastern or Arab civilization within this global capitalist order becomes much harder. Previously, in the period I'm talking about in the book, civilization was a unitary concept, as we've seen, with different grades and levels. And there's one kind of civilization, but you can have more of it than other people. Towards the end of the 19th century, it became increasingly a question of our civilization, or our culture, or tradition, or heritage versus their civilization. You get this other polarization between our tureth, or tradition, our genuine civilization versus the Western civilization al Madaniyya al-Kharabiyya, which has come from somewhere else. So this emphasis on the origins of ideas, genealogical thinking, if you like, becomes much more prominent. This change, I think, you know, you can see analogues to it in many other places around the world. And it was much more a product of a shift in global historical conditions than of something that was specific to either Arab culture or to its encounter with the West. So, in brief, I'm trying to historicise the emergence of this emphasis on origins and then to reveal some of the other possibilities that emerged, perhaps somewhat briefly, in the mid-19th century. This can perhaps help us to understand not only that early enough the period itself, from the 1830s to the early 1870s, but also later periods of Arab history. Aspirations for projects of modern government and capitalist development hardly went away in later generations. The work of someone like Shereen Si'ali, say, on men of capital, businessmen and economists in Mandate Palestine between the the two world wars um, shows that these these kinds of vision could persist in even rather unlikely circumstances. And in another sense, perhaps this uh, this (coughs) kind of historicisation of where the emphasis on origins has come from may help us in some small way to push back against the polarisation, not just of Arab politics, but of politics in lots of places, including obviously here, into this kind of binary between modernity versus authenticity, between Tanwir and Asala, if you like. And it may assist us also in, in seeing more clearly projects of power and of exploitation which are not captured by that binary, as well as the possibilities, utopian or otherwise, That may point beyond it. Thank you very much. Mm Hope I haven't gone on too (laughs) long.